Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. For we are in the business of provocative inquiry. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Ravinder, why don't you tell us all about this famous chat room of yours? Famous or infamous? Actually, it's a lot of fun is what it is. It's a... Just a great group of people who, you know, discuss whatever is being discussed on the air. They bring a whole new dimension to the show. Um, they can often offer answers and stuff like that. Oftentimes we'll have the guest in the chat room as well, and they provide us even more information. So if you can't tune in live because you're driving or your boss doesn't like it, then you can always come back afterwards and um, open it up, read all the comments and check out any earls and other information we may have provided. So that is at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. That would include, of course, the videos or movies that we show during. Mm -hmm. uh, Okay. In this week's spotlight, we shine a light on choices. We all make choices every day. And for the most part, we are certain of why we make the choices we do. But are we? I have discussed the fact that functional uh, MRI Uh, Scans show that our decisions are largely made in the subconscious, followed then by our conscious mind actively constructing the rational basis for our choices. I've also pointed out how our various defense mechanisms develop strategies designed to protect us from everything, from embarrassment to physical abuse. The child who is beaten by a parent often internalizes the beating as something they must have deserved and adapts accordingly. The young person who is ridiculed over the way they laugh unconsciously chooses not to laugh, and again adapts accordingly. In all, these defense mechanisms lay at the root of many of our decisions, and obviously they can be self-sabotaging. In my book, Choices and Illusions, the how and why behind this form of self-destructive behavior is fleshed out in detail. That said, I often hear this question, Why do people habitually do such stupid, self-destructive things? Think about this for a minute. Do you know anyone who regularly participates in a behavior that is self-destructive or counterproductive? The answer to why always involves what they get out of it. Somewhere in their mindset is a perceived advantage. Even if that advantage is no longer valid, and disguised or hidden deep in the subconscious. Let me provide an example that's both based on research and easy to understand. Years ago, I did a fair amount of research on something referred to as psychoneuroimmunology, or PNI for short. This was at a time when the mechanical view of the human body was so dominant that many healthcare professionals totally rejected the idea. And to suggest such a thing was a certain way to find yourself rebuked and even ostracized. Now, my research spanned a very large area, ranging from cancer remission to the common cold. Here is something the numbers pulled up very fast. The singer who suffered from performance anxiety could easily find themselves on the day of their performance with a sore throat, while the skater would suffer not from a sore throat, but from a sprained ankle. Coincidence that their affliction prevented the very thing that they feared? I think not. And if correlation means anything, the answer is a resounding no. It is for this reason that whenever I am working with someone, the first question I ask is, what do you get out of this behavior? How do you benefit from it? Now, sometimes that takes some digging to discover. I have found that regardless of the nature of the behavior, there is usually some benefit believed to be gained, albeit often unconsciously. 
I once worked with the parents of a young man who had been diagnosed as suffering from a multiple of conditions, including MS. He was in a wheelchair and failed to respond favorably to any and all treatments. His father owned a medical company and was therefore well-connected with the best physicians available. When I reviewed this boy's history, I discovered that his health began to suffer when a sibling was born. And the more attention uh, this sibling received, the worse his health became. You can read the full story of this in my book, Wellness, Just a State of Mind. I theorized that the boy's gain from his illness might have its source in his need for attention, for he had been the center of attention prior to the birth of his sibling. Together with his health care team, we employed an intertalk program to alter the subconscious need for attention and thereby hopefully put this boy back on the road to health. The program worked. Within a year, his father sent me pictures of the boy at 16 years of age, standing alongside his car, holding up his newly earned driver's license. So the next time you find yourself indulging in some behavior that is not in your best interest, ask yourself, what do I gain from this? I think you'll discover something new about yourself when you do. My thoughts anyway, what are yours, Ravinder? Oh, I think the whole area of self-sabotage is fascinating. The fact is it um, impinges our lives upon our lives in so many different ways. It happens to all of us um, frequently, actually. You know, all of those things that, you know, just don't work out or we just continue getting bad luck, those are all evidence of that. But that was how I got into this entire field in the first place was uh, when I went to see a presentation when I used to work in the path lab in England and there was an anesthesiologist who was talking about um, a patient that had come to him with a pain in her arm that all the doctors were unable to diagnose. Um, and then under hypnosis, he managed to find out what the cause was. And it was an emotional event. And she was punishing herself with this pain in her arm. Um, and as soon as she discovered it, it went away. Um, you know, so it can have extreme manifestations or they can be mild, but they happen all the time. And that's the basis of all of your inner talk work. And that's what we focus on. You know, we focused on for 25 years. I met you, of course, when I was lecturing at Imperial College. And, uh, and part of the lecture had to do with wellness and how we can inflict dis ease mm-hmm. upon ourselves, such as what you're talking about. You, uh, I, I shared stories about common colds and habitual patterns of mm-hmm. presentation I was giving in Israel. And and you took that away. And, and what happened? I did. You know, I obviously took it really seriously because, I mean, after the event, you and I got together and then I came over here and, um, yeah, I reached a point. I mean, I used to get a seasonal cold every spring and every fall and I put it down to the change in temperatures and I wasn't dressing correctly for it or whatever and I but I would always get a cold in the spring and in the fall um, after your presentation I no longer had them and then I eventually figured figured out it was because I didn't dare you know <laughs> it's like because you would see right through it. it I was trying to get out of something and so I didn't but that is very educational just by itself the fact that you know this fear of actually I wouldn't be gaining anything anymore because he's going to see right through it. So if I want a day off, I just need to ask for a day off. Okay. Every week I read some of your letters <laughs> as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our guest was Howard Falco and we discussed his books. I am and time in a bottle. Eric wrote, I have asked for answers many times with no results. I would really like to have that experience but as close as I get seems to be intuitions. CB commented, I find my experience has become more smooth as I have paid more attention to intuitions and followed them. I have associated part of the surrender feeling to when things come to me. A lot of information goes past me, but every once in a while a piece of information will come with that euphoric, relaxed, surrender feeling. I tend to go with those. Many times it takes a couple of times for the idea to catch my attention. I think that is more of my being careful than trusting the first time I get the feeling. Martha wrote, I like the ordinary sense of special feelings that Mr. Falco presented. Great show. Moving on, Alicia wrote, thank you for your shows and your wonderful intertalk programs. They have so changed my life and for the better. 
Robert wrote, I have used you and your wisdom as one of my powerful mentors. I devour your newsletters and often forward them to friends who demonstrate similar ways of thinking. Thanks again. Okay, now, if you're not already getting our free newsletter, why not begin today by just simply going to eldentaylor.com and registering to receive them. Moving on, Renetta wrote, I have purchased several of your Intertalk CDs for my family, and we have seen good results. My daughter has improved her testing scores with a positive education exam CD and looks forward to listening to the CD for positive sport performance. Thank you for all that you do. Now, here's one for you. Swollen Halo wrote, Provocative enlightenment? You cannot provoke someone into enlightenment. I guess your handlers missed that one. Or did they? Okay. Given today's show, I think I'll just ask our guest what he might think enlightenment is and whether or not a little prodding, provocation of matters we think we understand or believe might not just urge one closer to a major form of enlightenment via maybe what we'll call one small enlightenment at a time. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to apply by emailing me at eldon at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your feedback and comments. Now to this week's show, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain with the author of just a terrific new read, Dr. Andrew Newberg. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Andrew B. Newberg, M.D., is currently the Director of Research at the Murda Brine Center of Integrative Medicine at Thomas Jefferson University and Hospital in Philadelphia. He is also a professor in the Departments of Emergency Medicine and Radiology at Thomas Jefferson University, and he is adjunct professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. He has actively pursued a number of neuroimaging research projects, which have included the study of aging and dementia, epilepsy, and neurological and psychiatric disorders. Dr. Newberg has been particularly involved in the study of mystical and religious experiences, a field referred to as neurotheology. He has also studied the more general mind-body relationships in both the clinical and research aspects of his career, including understanding the physiological correlates of acupuncture therapy, meditation, and other types of alternative therapies. He has taught medical students, undergraduate and graduate students, as well as medical residents about stress management, spirituality and health, and the neurophysiology of religious experience. He has published over 200 peer-reviewed articles and chapters on brain function, brain imaging, and the study of religious and mystical experiences. Dr. Newberg has been with us before, so on that, let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Andrew Newberg. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on your program. I love your book. I just oh, got to start you. right there. I love your book. <laughs> I love your approach. I well, love I your work. That. A great deal of admiration for you. And I know that you have a few critics out there that take a few shots, most of which I think are unfair. But, <laughs> hey, we'll discuss that a little bit. I don't know how many times you get told, I love your work, but I just want you to know that. As a matter of fact, I was at the university in Philadelphia speaking a year ago at the Sky Foundation, and you were a cornerstone of part of my presentation. I just love what you do. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. We like to consider three things in our show. Sir, who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how would you use it? So to that end. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and why and when you became interested in neurotheology. Well, I suppose I actually became interested in neurotheology back even when I was a kid. I mean, I was always, I didn't know that what it was <laughs> at the time, but, uh, you know, ever since I was young, I was asking a lot of questions. I always was challenging uh, people's ideas about religious and spiritual beliefs and uh, what they meant. I was... I was disturbed a lot by the fact that there were so many different traditions that people felt so strongly, sometimes with a great deal of animosity against people who believe differently. And I, I kept thinking, well, you know, how can we get a little bit, cl- some clarity on understanding what all these different traditions mean, how we understand them, why they're, why they're here, and, uh, and see if, if we could make some sense out of all of this. So I, 
I started with the idea that, well, our brain is the way in which we interpret the world around us, how we make sense of things, our, our, all of the what we hear and see and all that is processed by the brain. So that must have something to do with it, and, and certainly went down a fairly scientific path, and, and certainly still do love science, as, as that's a very big part of my life. But as I was doing that, I realized that there were certain questions that to me seemed very difficult for science to, uh, to address, if not impossible. And, uh, and again, some of these are the, just the really big questions, you know, how do we know what's real, and how do, we, how do we understand that, and how do we make sense of the world around us? So I started to look at a lot of different philosophical uh, perspectives, different religious and spiritual traditions to see what they had to say on the matter. And, and finally, when I, uh, when I was in medical school, I had this wonderful year where I decided to take some extra time and connected with a person who was doing a lot of brain imaging studies, and that, that became an important part of my, my usual career of, of using brain imaging scans to help people and to, to use for research. But I also connected with another physician who was a psychiatrist named Eugene DeQuilly, who uh, was exploring the same kinds of questions that I was about the nature of religious and spiritual experiences and belief systems uh, from a kind of brain-related perspective. And when all of this kind of came together, we realized, gee, we could actually start to use our brain scans to not just study things like Alzheimer's disease or depression, but to look at religious and spiritual beliefs, practices, experiences, and so forth, and try to understand them better. And then that's what ultimately kind of grew into the field of neurotheology more formally uh, as a way of, of really trying to link up what we understand from the perspective of our brain and how that is related to our religious and spiritual selves. So it has been a, a lifelong endeavor. It continues to be. Uh, I, I feel like it is my kind of combined scientific and spiritual path or journey. And uh, uh, even though I've had a lot of uh, fun and excitement at, at being able to explore these questions to, to date. There, we've really just scratched the surface, and there's just so much left for, for everyone to do. And, uh, and so I'm looking forward to many more future uh, studies and, and uh, ideas that we can hopefully develop, uh, myself and my colleagues and so forth. There's, there's a lot of work to be done. That's great, and I'm looking forward to those studies as well, sir. So let me ask you this now. You've done a lot of work other than in neurotheology, and uh, you heard the, the spotlight today. <clears throat> what are your thoughts on the interface of mind and body with regards to wellness? Well, I think absolutely there's a connection. Uh, as you said in my introduction, I am the director of research at our Integrative Medicine Center here at Thomas Jefferson, and, and we mm -hmm. certainly understand how important it is to make that connection to understand the relationship between the mind, brain, and body, uh, that uh, when people have various physiological problems, diseases and so forth, uh, cancers, uh, gastrointestinal problems and so forth, they affect the way our brain works. They affect our mood. They affect our ability to think and, and uh, look at the world in, in effective ways. And, of course, just the opposite is true, and as, as everyone will attest, when you have a big uh, you know, a big event or a big exam the next day and you're nervous about it, well, you don't just think about it being nervous, but you feel it in your body. Your heart pounds and your stomach churns. And so uh, these are connections that go back and forth. And we understand a fair amount about how some of those things work. We know that there are emotional centers in the brain, a part of our brain called the limbic system. We know that we can think about all these things in some kind of abstract way using the higher centers of our brain. And then our brain connects to our body through some of the most core areas, uh, an area called the hypothalamus, which regulates our hormones and regulates uh, all of our functions in terms of whether we are in a state of calm or in a state of arousal. And so, you know, all of these things go back and forth all the time. There's always a great deal of, of interaction and communication between our brain and our body. And, and so the more we can keep our body healthy, then that means that we're going to keep our brain healthier, and vice versa. The more we can keep our brain and our mind healthy, the more we're going to keep our body healthy. I want to spend two questions as a follow-up off of that, if I can. The first sure. one is has to do with placebos and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the work with imaging and exactly what occurs in the brain with regard to effective placebos. And then, of course, the second one is... There's an integrative aspect to the spiritual element that seems to be involved in the healing process or the wellness process as well. Uh, please flesh that out. Correct me if I'm wrong. Sure, absolutely. Another great questions. Um, so, 
you know, the placebo effect is a very interesting issue, and and uh, and probably uh, over the last maybe five to ten years, there's been more and more research looking at it, which I think is very helpful and very appropriate. And in fact, one of the things that I say frequently in my talks is we don't take advantage of the placebo effect enough. I mean, as as physicians, uh, we, with what the data show that the placebo effect can can be effective in anywhere from. 20% to almost 100% of people, depending on the circumstances, uh, why not utilize it? Why not get a person's brain and mind in a state that will hopefully help them, right. whether a little bit or a lot, in overcoming some particular issue that they're facing? And what's particularly interesting from a brain perspective with regard to the placebo effect is how specific it is. Our brain is very smart. And, uh, and so, you know, brain imaging studies have shown, for example, that if a person with, um, with depression responds to a placebo, well, their brain produces more serotonin. And serotonin is, is one of the key neurotransmitters that is affected by depression and is affected by the, the, the drugs, the antidepressant drugs. Uh, we give Prozac, for example, which works on the serotonin system and helps to give more serotonin to the brain. Um, and so, it, you know, again, not a surprise that when our brain responds to the placebo because of uh, depression, then um, we are actually able to see this kind of a change in that serotonin uh, level of the brain. In a, in a study that looked at Parkinson's patients, where they have a neurodegenerative process that damages the dopamine systems of the brain, dopamine cells of the brain, um, they find that the brain of that person who responds to placebo has a release of dopamine. So even though dopamine is, is damaged, it somehow seems to be able to turn on in the context of the placebo effect. And, the, and one of the last studies that I just mentioned briefly is uh, studies of pain perception. And when people res with pain respond to the placebo, they actually have a release of endorphins, our, our body's own opiate system in the brain. So it's amazing how specific and selective our brain is at directing that placebo effect. And again, what, what is also an incredibly important take-home message is that it almost doesn't matter what you have, even if you have a real degenerate, you know, neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's, there is still a benefit that can be derived from the placebo effect. So I think that uh, the placebo effect is something which is uh, very worthwhile to pursue, is something that we should utilize more to get people into that more positive attitude, thinking that there's a very good potential for something to be useful. And uh, there's, that is going to certainly increase the likelihood that that particular intervention, whether it is real or not, is going to be effective for people. When it comes to your other question about spirituality, um, you know, absolutely there is a relationship between spirituality and, um, and our overall health and well-being. And the, many of the studies that have been done, and it continues to be an expanding literature database, uh, have shown that people who are more religious and more spiritual tend to do much better from a health-related perspective. They tend to have lower levels of depression and anxiety. They tend to do have less uh, rates of various cancers. They tend to do better with different disorders like heart disease and cancer. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion about why, and, um, and we could talk about that in more detail, but the, um, there definitely seems to be a very important um, change that seems to be associated with being spiritual and, and engaging in religious and spiritual practices and activities. So practices like meditation and prayer uh, have very specific effects on the brain and also seem to ultimately translate those effects throughout the body by helping to improve our immune system and helping to improve our hormone balance and regulate our heart rate and our blood pressure as, as effectively as possible. So uh, there is definitely, for, for those people who are religious or spiritual, there often can be some very valuable side effects, so to speak, uh, with regard to their health. Um, and one last point about this is that uh, and this also is something that I think neurotheology is continuing to look at or are going to look at in the future, is, is the potential negative side. And there are some examples where spirituality or religion doesn't go so well. And when people are dealing with religious struggle, um, they're, they're struggling with their beliefs, maybe they've had some experiences that have challenged their beliefs, uh, maybe somebody uh, thinks that God is out to get them, and that's why they got a particular disorder or something like that. Uh, these can be very negative uh, ideas that are associated with religion and spirituality that I think also is something that's important for us to understand and understand how that negative side uh, can interact with our brain and our mind and how we might find more effective ways of directing people uh, into a more 
a more beneficial and more positive perspective on their religious and spiritual beliefs. So the the bottom line takeaway message, we've got a break coming up here real quick, is if you have a physician, choose one that is positive in terms of the outlook, outcome, because if they're negative and they just say go home and die, that's exactly what will happen. That, that's and, exactly if, right. and if you have a spiritual system, um, make sure that it's a spiritual system you feel good about. And if it right. isn't, change it. Did I get that's that right. right? Absolutely, absolutely. All right, when we come back from the break, I want to jump into your book. You differentiate between the big E and the little E of enlightenment. We had a question or, you know, a comment earlier. I want you to flesh that out. We're speaking with Dr. Andrew Newberg about his work and inspirational book, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. I highly recommend this book. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room today featuring our guests discussing objective reality and beliefs how our brain can mislead us. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there. But remember, if you're driving or otherwise unable to open your computer right now, you can come back later and do so. Okay, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you. I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Andrew Newberg about his work and delightful book, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. You can learn more about Dr. Newberg and his work by visiting his site at andrewnewberg.com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. All right, Professor Newberg, we just played some of Let It Be by the Beatles. So please tell us, why is this music important to you? And how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, you know, as I've studied this field of neurotheology for the past uh, 20 years, really, I think one of the things that I have come to learn over time is a deep appreciation of everyone's belief systems. Uh, What I like to tell people is, you know, look, we're all 
in basically the same situation. We all have a brain that's looking out at the world and interpreting information and, uh, and doing the best job it can to figure out what's going on. And it's an infinite world, and we have a very finite and limited and flawed uh, brain that's just trying to do the best job it can. So when we come to different conclusions and one person decides to become uh, Christian and one person becomes is- Islamic and one person becomes Buddhist, uh, to me, we need to be open and understanding about all of the different perspectives that people can come to. And so the idea of letting it be, the idea that, that to some degree we have to be more tolerant, more compassionate, and understanding of people and their different belief systems that they have, that to me is, is one of the things that I really have learned as a part of this whole process. And as I've studied hundreds of people's brains doing all different kinds of religious and spiritual practices from all different kinds of traditions, that to me is, is really one of the the cornerstones of what I think this research can help us understand. And so uh, that's why that song in particular just kind of has a lot of meaning in that context. It's a wonderful answer. Now, I promised to ask you about Biggie and Lily, but before I do, your response here provokes. When you look at the brains, and you have, you've looked at those of nuns, you've looked at, you know, uh, Catholicism, Sikhism, Buddhism, you've looked at a number of different religions, when their brains experience these, uh, um, what shall we call them, enlightenment experiences, mm-hmm. aren't they essentially, regardless of the the religion that uh, the, the individual believes they're practicing, aren't their brains essentially doing the same thing? Well, yes. I mean, there certainly are some core elements to these experiences which are very similar uh, across all of the traditions. There are some. There's always some slight differences, and of course, what's been you know one of the ways that we've looked at this is by studying the brain. The other way we've looked at this, and we can get into this in more detail in a few minutes, is uh, doing. We ran an online survey of people's most intense enlightenment or spiritual experiences, and there's enormous diversity of all of that. So, to some degree, everybody's brain has to be doing something a little bit different. But on the other hand, as you mentioned there are certain core elements, core components of, of these enlightenment experiences that do seem to have a universal quality and probably reflect similar kinds of changes in the brain itself. So I, I think that we ultimately may see a kind of coming together that irrespective of what tradition a person starts with, that there may be certain very important similarities when people get to those most intense experiences, those senses, those feelings of of connectedness and oneness, uh, the emotional feelings that they have, um, the intense feelings of love and compassion, and uh, and the intensity of those experiences, all of that kind of comes together pretty much irrespective of where where they're coming from and what tradition they come from. Okay, you open your delightful book by differentiating between the biggie and the littley, Flesh that one out for us, please. Sure. Well, we do this for a couple of reasons. One is is that I think there really is a continuum of these of these experiences. There are, uh, you know, we, while we often think about enlightenment as being kind of the big experiences, the the Buddha experiences, which they certainly are. Um, there are many other experiences that have elements or are at least like those like those biggie experiences in kind, and uh, if not in intensity. And the other reason why I think it's important is that all of us have had those little E experiences, and so we've all had a little bit of a taste of what enlightenment is all about. So the little E experiences are those experiences that we have when we suddenly get something for the first time, a problem that we've been trying to resolve at work, a, a difficult issue with a relationship, maybe a question that we've been struggling with in our own mind about how to how to behave, what kind of job to have, maybe what kind of religious tradition to follow or something like that, where we suddenly get it. We, get, uh, we kind of have that little eureka moment, so to speak, where we, we understand the problem in a new way. And that's part of the issue, which is that usually these kinds of little e-experiences are about a specific issue or about a specific problem. Uh, what they do is they change the course of your life, but they don't change the very nature or essence of your life. That comes from the big E experiences. And so by a big E experience, this is not something where you just resolve one or two simple issues that you've been struggling with, but where everything in your entire life and your entire way of thinking about the world radically changes. You understand the world in a completely different way. You have a a totally different sense of clarity about the world, about what the world is about, what you are about, 
uh, and, it, and it changes and transforms every aspect of your life. So when we talk about the big E experiences, uh, we are talking about those truly profound moments that people can have that, ch- that just change their lives, you know, getting struck by lightning and everything changes. And I, but I think one of the important parts of all of this is that not only do the little E experiences help everyone kind of get a, a, a taste of what that big E experience is like, those little E experiences, you alluded to this early in the introduction, uh, can in many ways lead up to those big E experiences. And, and I think perhaps the most important thing of all of this is that, you know, based on our survey data, based on what we know about these experiences, based on what we know about the brain, is that these experiences can happen to anyone. And so this is something that everyone should theoretically be able to pursue and potentially derive some benefit from. Given your differentiation, then, I assume that we can provoke enlightenment a little bit at a time. But how about yourself? Have you experienced enlightenment? And if so, share it with us, please. Well, the experience that I talk about in my book is is something that, you know, was a very profound moment in my life, a very profound part of my life. That What, what was going on, uh, as I mentioned uh, in, the fir- in your first question about just who I am and why I got into this, I was asking lots of questions. I really had some very big questions, uh, questions about the nature of reality. I, I wanted to know something. I wanted to feel like I could really grab onto something in such an important, such a big way that um, what I did was I, I, I kind of went down this philosophical path. It became very contemplative. It became a process in which I kept thinking about the nature of these questions. How could I resolve these questions? And what I decided at, at one point was that if there was anything that I wasn't sure about, that I would say that, well, I doubt it. I'm not sure. I'm going to put it into what I referred to as kind of a realm of doubt. And it didn't mean it was wrong. It didn't mean it was right. It just meant that I wasn't sure, and I would kind of keep going. But as I progressed and as I began to question virtually everything about myself and about the world around me and my, my, uh, my own religious and spiritual beliefs, my scientific beliefs, um, what what finally happened in striving for some kind of answer is that I eventually hit an experience that, for lack of a better way of describing it, I refer to as infinite doubt. Um, it was where basically everything was uncertain. And when I was talking to my, my co-author, Mark Wallman, about this experience uh, a few years ago as we started to think about this book, um, I, you know, I explained the experience, and, I, and he said to me, well, that must have been one of the most terrifying moments of your life. I mean, here you are trying to find answers to, to all these big questions, and you've come to the conclusion that there's no way to find an answer to these questions. And I thought about that, and I laughed, and I said, you know, the funny thing was, was that it was the most calming, most blissful kind of experience that, that I ever had. It just suddenly, I no longer needed to find the answers to, to these questions. It was, it was okay. I, w- I sort of surrendered myself to the process, and I said, it's okay to not have these answers. And that gave a whole different kind of perspective to me in terms of the way I think about my life and the way I think about every aspect of, of how I lead my life and my occupation, my relationships, and so forth. So for me, you know, that was a, a truly big E kind of an experience. Um, that that to me was was very very powerful. And of course, it's always the, the the hardest part of saying you know have you been have you had an enlightenment experience is always um, the difficulty in truly being able to define them. And so uh, I always have a certain reluctance, and you know it, it's still part of that doubt. So even there, I sometimes have to step back and question what what it meant. And and again, even since that day, which which occurred back when I was in college, um, I I really. I mean, that's part of why I continue to pursue neurotheology, because I'm still trying to understand what that experience is and what it meant and, and how I utilize that in the context of my life. You and Renee Descartes, you're in good company. I doubt yeah, well, before I am. <laughs> believe me, I was very excited when I first read Descartes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There are many theories and ideas out there about this one. For example, not long ago, we had Professor D.F. Schwab on the show, and he treats the entire field of neurotheology much differently than you, of course. He begins his work in neurotheology with a quote from the late Christopher Hitchens, and I'll quote it. Since it's obvious, obviously inconceivable that all religions can be right, the most reasonable conclusion is that they are all wrong. Close quote. 
Swab's view of why we have a spiritual brain is strictly one of evolutionary psychology. That is, we have it in order to deal with the certainty of our mortality. Right. Why do you, Professor Newberg, believe we have a spiritual brain? Well, you know, for me, neurotheology, let me start with, with how neurotheology looks at this kind of a question. I mean, for me, neurotheology is a two-way street that includes both the scientific as well as the theological and philosophical perspectives. And as I always like to say, I mean, we always have to be very cautious about how we interpret all of this information as we head towards our conclusions about what what's really going on. Um, I very fully appreciate those evolutionary psychology approaches. I, I certainly think that there is a great deal of value to them. Uh, I think uh, some of them may very well be correct, or at least in part, uh, in helping us to understand how religious and spiritual beliefs and practices and phenomena have become such a, a fundamental part of human history and, and a part of our brain. But with that in mind, I also recognize that that these issues might be more complex than that, and that while, you know, we can look at what's going on in the brain when somebody's praying um, or, or meditating, that doesn't necessarily tell us everything about that experience, because there is the subjective nature of that experience as well. And so, uh, as I always like to say, if I take a brain scan of a, of a nun who's, who feels that she is in the presence of God, that's, the scan basically shows me what's going on in her brain when she has that experience. It doesn't prove whether or not God is in the room with her and whether she is truly connecting to God or not, or whether God even exists. So I think we always have to be very careful about how far we can take the different pieces of information that come out of neurotheology and how we, how we make sense of that in the context of the beliefs that we hold. And, and that being said, one of my one of my concerns, I guess, that I have with the evolutionary theories, and part of why I've, I've moved away from it to some degree in my own work, is that they're just very difficult to truly prove. I mean, we have no way of going back 100,000 years and saying, okay, you know, was, was the basis of religion the ability to quell a fear uh, about death? Uh, did it have something to do with signifying that, uh, or signaling that we're part of this group? Um, did it help to create a set of morals uh, and, and a cohesive society? Uh, or is it something completely different? You know, did it just grow out of a brain that became very complex and could ask big questions? Did it grow out of the brain's ability to experience the world in different ways? Um, I, I, I certainly don't feel that there is a specifically spiritual part of the brain in the sense that there's one particular part that lights up whenever we feel something spiritual and otherwise it doesn't. Uh, I think spiritual and religious beliefs and, and practices and experiences basically um, utilize the same areas of our brain, the same parts of our brain as we use for everything else. In fact, when you look at the richness and diversity of religious and spiritual phenomena, uh, it, it, to me it's not a surprise to think that virtually every our whole brain is that spiritual part of ourselves. And, and as you asked earlier, when it comes to the connection between the brain and the body, if that's the case, then basically it's our entire selves that is our spiritual self. And whether or not there is something which is truly spiritual or supernatural or consciousness or something that's beyond the physical and material world, I don't know. But I am certainly open to that possibility, and I think we have to be very uh, careful and cautious as we go forward in trying to understand what all of this means and how, uh, how this makes sense to us in the context of who, of who we are as human beings. Of course, you know, the converse, I just have to point out, and I'm sure our audience has already intuited this, that among these theories is the theory that if uh, we have a creator, um, and it's important that we are to recall or remember or, or know anything about why we're here, what we're here for, the big questions that you were searching for, he certainly right. would provide us a method to do that. So Absolutely. it's kind of a chicken and an egg deal in that exactly, sense. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and what you said is exactly what I tell people. is that, Right. I mean, uh, obviously, if there's a God up in heaven and we're down here, it would be kind of fundamentally silly for us to not have a brain that could, could understand God and pray to God and think about God and, and make that kind of a connection. So certainly we would have that ability. And, and so, again, you know, it, we don't have an answer yet. I mean, there's no way to say for sure that yes, there is, or no, there isn't. And there's ways of trying to explain why we have this spiritual brain, whether one is a, a very uh, devout religious individual or whether one is a very devout atheist. 
Okay, but as a follow-up question now, Swab reviews brain activity in a purely mechanical sense, as I'm sure you know. So, mm-hmm. for example, he provides examples of temporal lobe epilepsy, and you've studied epilepsy, as mm-hmm. explanatory of some ecstatic experiences, including hearing messages from God. Is right. it fair, in your view, to come to the conclusion that these experiences, religious experiences, all of them, mm-hmm. or any part of them, are driven strictly by some mechanical malfunction in the brain? Mm. You know, I, I would say that um, I think it's very unlikely that you can uh, that we could use that as a complete explanation of everyone's experiences. Uh, are there a few people who have had seizures who have very unusual religious experiences, and that seizure basically kind of accounts for it, and when the seizure is removed, those experiences go away? Well, yeah, you know, that, that does happen, and there are some, several cases of that. Uh, but, um, but when you, first of all, uh, when you look at all of the patients who have seizures, a very small percentage actually have these kinds of intense religious experiences, uh, you know, usually about maybe 5% if, uh, if we're lucky. So uh, right off the bat, it seems very un, un, unlikely that certainly everyone who has had these kinds of intense religious and spiritual experiences or near-death experiences or whatever uh, is having some kind of seizure activity. I think that's that's difficult to to make an argument about that. Um, the other thing is is that uh, as I mentioned a few moments ago, these experiences are so rich and diverse that I think it's very difficult for us to be able to explain all of these different kinds of experiences simply on the basis of one type of disorder. And uh, and so while seizures may account for a very small percentage of them, uh, I think it's unlikely that they account for all of them. But the last thing I want to say is also to kind of flip this process around, which is to say that just because somebody may even have an experience with regard to some type of pathological condition, a seizure, for as, as you're using in the example, does that mean that the experience is not real? And the analogy that I always like to use is that, you know, I wear glasses because I have terrible vision. So when I wake up in the morning, it's, very, it, it, it's a very blurry world. And I put my glasses on and I see the world clearly. Now, the world didn't change but I now see the world in a different kind of way. So is it possible that when somebody has a near-death experience, a seizure, uh, some other type of disorder, where suddenly they experience God in a very profound way, how are we to be able to say for sure that that is just a pathological condition that resulted in a very bizarre experience for somebody versus it's almost like putting glasses on the brain and now looking at the world in a far clearer way than what a person typically sees the world. So there are a lot of interesting problems that arise. It's, it's, a, it's a very important piece of the puzzle because it certainly speaks to the importance of the temporal lobes uh, and perhaps very intense brain activity as, as playing some role in all of these experiences. But it is just that. It is one piece of a puzzle, and that, that puzzle has many other pieces, including some which go beyond, uh, at least at the moment, what science is able to take a look at. Okay, I have to ask this because you, you brought it up, and I've got so many more questions. We're, we're <laughs> going to have to bring you back to the show again, Dr. I'm Greenberg. happy to come back. But uh, look, you talk about an NDE, and, and recently there's been a lot of you know stuff about NDEs, and I'm not going to mention any names, but there have been a few alleged NDEs that have turned out not to be, well, maybe they've just been whatever. Right. Bottom line is, with an NDE, supposedly we're flatlined. We have no brain activity, right? And yet, these people come back and they would meet the criterion you set out as the big E. Their right. lives completely changed. They see the Absolutely. world entirely different. How is it possible that if the brain's not working, I mean, what mm. would you see if if you if you were watching that brain with fMRI at that time, or do you, is it just completely inactive and they're having this experience anyway? Well, you know, uh, it's a very problematic issue because we obviously don't, there, there's two big issues. We don't know exactly how much activity is still there, even when we can't see it. You know, so uh, our medical equipment has certain limitations. And so if there's very low-level electrical activity in the brain, we may not see that on an EEG or we may not see it on a functional MRI scan, even though there's still something happening there. So that's always one part of the, the issue. The other part of the issue is, is that we don't even know when a near-death experience occurs. The presumption is 
that it is occurring when the person is flatlined, as you said, but we don't know that for sure. It may occur as a person is heading towards being flatlined. It may occur as a person is coming back from being flatlined. So it may be almost like how a computer reboots itself when you've turned it off. Maybe all of our brains sort of reboot in the same kind of way so that there are certain core elements of these experiences that are very universal that a person's brain now starts to experience the world in a radically different way. Again, going back to my analogy with the glasses, maybe it sees the world and, it, you know, we can see, I know obviously there are many anecdotal stories of people who have seen deceased individuals that they didn't know were deceased or could see the, the room around them or whatever. Um, so, you know, there, there are many anomalous experiences that we have to try to understand what's going on and whether or not our consciousness can truly leave our body or not. Um, so there are a lot of real challenges to being able to understand, and that's why I say I think what neurotheology, I, I hope, sort of teaches us is that we have to be really cautious about going too quickly and saying, oh, okay, well, clearly that happened because the brain died or that happened because we had a seizure, that we have to be very open to what we're, all of the different we're out of time. are. Yeah. We're out of time, Dr. Newberg. <laughs> Give your website, please. Sure. It's um, uh, Andrew. It's just simple. Andrew Newberg, N-E-W-B-E-R-G dot com. And uh, people can go and take a look at the books. I, I know there was an ad for the great courses. I have a great course called The Spiritual Brain. So maybe people can pick that up as well. And love to be happy to come back on your program because we obviously have a lot more to cover sometime. <laughs> You're right. And you can count on it. We'll be bringing you back the book, The New Science of Transformation, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. What we didn't get to, but I want you to know you get in the book, is how you can enhance your own enlightenment experience. Okay, thank you for your work, Dr. Newberg, and for your willingness to share it with us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. Until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. <laughs>